and we are recording on thursday august 10th 2023 at 2 p.m eastern time with dr robert malone and dr stephen hatfield coming on here yet again and uh for everyone who i'm sure is tuning into this to watch uh these two are my uh, deep state handlers uh as i showed you guys with that video the uh, the jig is up people have found out um I'll never understand how they can hold two thoughts in their mind that are so polarizing that on one hand, I'm a deep state operative. And on the other hand, I've been banned from iTunes, Reddit, YouTube, and I'm, and I'm broadcasting a show from a bedroom. So if I, if, if I was in with the government, I would be, I would be making well, that Joe the, Rogan the, money. The obvious explanation is the government never pays very well. Yes. Well, that's what it is. And um, yeah. Dr. Hatfield, your thoughts on that? I, th here, I figure you get here. You've been you've been awarded uh, a uh, less lowest cost, technically acceptable contract. I have been sh I have been <laughs> what is it? Sheep dipped where they take someone and put him into a civilian. I'm sure. I, I mean, I've showed you those videos where it's I mean, it's people's. I, I was telling my dad about it this past weekend. And of course, in you know, the eloquent way that only my dad can say, just fuck them. Keep working. I was like, thanks, dad. But. Dr. Hatfield, you're the only one here with the tie. So what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, um, I couldn't listen to the woman anymore. Um, there's no lack of even basic education in the biological sciences. It's just uh, conspiracy theories. Just to say, Stephen is talking about a clip that we're not going to discuss. That uh, comes from yeah. That Stephen is talking about a clip that. Sorry, I thought you were done. That we're not going to discuss uh, because yeah. it involves a, a hater uh, that has gone over the deep end. So we're just going to let her yeah. be. We'll we'll just we'll just slide on that. Well, why don't we jump to a much more uh, much more interesting topic of uh, of Dr. Peter Hotez? Because I know you just posted about him, Dr. Malone. Oh, I haven't posted about Hotez for quite a while. Uh, um. And uh, the latest is Offit, uh, and uh, even Brett Weinstein is jumping on the bus now about Paul Offit's okay. uh, comment to the uh, point that uh, the he is he is clearly so Paul Offit for the introduction to the audience and framing this is like Hotez a, a kind of anointed uh, vaccine guru um, uh, here in the United States uh, who had a key role in the redevelopment of a rotavirus vaccine after the initial rotavirus vaccine failed. Um, so uh, has he actually ever invented anything novel? I'm not sure, uh, but he does hold an endowed share in pediatrics and vaccinology at uh, um, uh, CHOP, I believe it is, uh, UPenn. And uh, he absolutely acts as a spokesperson and seems to be increasingly a spokesperson for the vaccine industry and the vaccine academic uh, establishment. Since uh, um, uh, we have uh, lost the benefit of Mr. Hotez's uh, framing, uh, since he was uh, resoundingly embarrassed uh, post Joe Rogan and Bobby Kennedy. And uh, and uh, people wonder where he's disappeared to. He went immediately off to Israel, by the way, um, at the behest of the Israeli government. Uh, so just so we all know where where he went. Uh, and um, Offit, uh, in a recent clip, 
acknowledged explicitly that there's a causal relationship between myocarditis, pericarditis, and the mRNA vaccines. And in this, he uh, fell back on a old explanation that is now being um, recirculated that really doesn't fit the data, which is that to the extent that myocarditis and pericarditis occur, it has to do with uh, mimicry, molecular mimicry between the virus and certain proteins of the heart, and it is an evoked autoimmune disease. The problem with that thesis, and Paul should know better, but but it's interesting that Paul floated this, and now it's coming back in the press as the dominant explanation uh, for what's now conceded to be a causal relationship, which the FDA and the CDC have known was a relationship uh, since uh, late 2011, at least, I mean, 2021 at least. Um, and the problem with Offit's thesis that this is autoimmune, it still could be partially autoimmune, but yeah. uh, the cardiac troponin levels come up uh, very rapidly after administration of these products in um, actually abnormally high levels. That doesn't mean that everybody gets, all these people got clinical myocarditis, that's another thing, or pericarditis, but these levels come up fairly rapidly and they are observed in up to 50% of people receiving the product. Um, so some degree of myocardial cell damage. The other paper that's come out recently that's relevant to this speaks to the pediatric uh, consequences of the myocarditis. You'll recall that we were all told early on that this would just be short-lived, transitory, and these uh, damages would rapidly resolve in these young men, largely yeah. men. And uh, that was an odd statement because uh, classically viral myocarditis has a, 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 unfortunately a fairly high mortality rate and uh, it causes scarring and long-term damage to the heart. And it would be odd that they would know that this was going to resolve itself quickly and not have that same clinical course when they'd only recently discovered that it was occurring. Um, and so that was clearly yet more disinformation, or we could just call it a lie, uh, propagated by the public health infrastructure and uh, circulated and amplified by corporate media. And now we have a paper coming out that in fact, these unfortunate young men that have developed clinical myocarditis have an alarmingly high rate of chronic scarring in their heart, just like what the history of myocarditis would predict, viral myocarditis uh, um, in particular. So so the, getting back to Mr. Offit, um, Unfortunately, his thesis, which he floats as the explanation, just doesn't fit the data. And then we're left with, well, is just, this just a, yet another limited hangout um, that is being exploded? Or is Mr. Offit just completely ignorant of the actual data here as it relates to this effect because he's in some sort of a reality bubble, which I think is even more scary as a, as a hypothesis, because Mr. Offit sits on many of the key decision-making bodies at the FDA and the CDC. So if he's ignorant about these things or, or in denial or whatever the psychological mechanism is, then that speaks to what may be going on in these other committees, uh, you know, if he's one of the key thought leaders there. Over. Dr. Hatfield. Yeah, yeah. there's... Uh... We've known for some time now there appears to be damage to the little powerhouses inside the cell. 
the mitochondria. Um, for over a year now, it's been known if you take the vaccine and you inject it intravenously into mice, um, they develop a severe myocarditis to the point on autopsy, you don't even have to be medically trained. You can pick out which one uh, was the control and which mice were the uh, were injected. It, it's gross, yeah, gross evidence. Damaged heart gets dark. Yeah. And um, again, in 2020, there was early evidence of this. And um, uh, mRNA fragments had been recovered from these hearts from the vaccine, but it wasn't consistent. And there was seemed to be an inability to culture live virus out of this autopsy material. But it was certainly a, a worry. And then they started seeing the dye retention studies that Dr. Malone's been talking about. When you have a lot of scar tissue in the wall of the heart and you inject a contrast dye for uh, enhanced imaging, um, this dye was finding it very difficult to get out through the muscle tissue because of the fibrosis, because of the scar tissue. And not all of these patients had symptoms. Yeah. So the true incidence of this, um, it's, uh, I think it's going to be pretty high. I've heard figures passed around of like one in 35. Jesus. Now, the long-term result of this, myocarditis typically has like a, a, a severe myocarditis has about a five-year survival rate. Because as you age, I mean, you need every little bit of, of cardiac reserve. And we had seen very early on that patients would survive even a mild COVID and then they would go into heart failure. And then they would start showing, um, as Dr. Malone said, troponin uh, one elevation, all the signs of cardiac muscle damage. And these were patients that had never, ever once received a tablet of hydroxychloroquine. And what the FDA did was immediately uh, before the vaccines had come out, I had blamed this on hydroxychloroquine, not the virus. And the, it, it, there's about 20 different viruses, including some of the hepatitis viruses that can cause a myocarditis. It's not a rare phenomena in medicine. And common things occur commonly. So, Rather than look at hydroxychloroquine, a safe drug for the FDA withdrew its EUA, but they never made one notion. What if you had lupus or rheumatoid arthritis and you were on hydroxychloroquine and you caught COVID? There was never any warning that you should come off your hydroxychloroquine temporarily, not one. What we were seeing 
Was the myocarditis in late patients? It wasn't due to the drug. And it's not been seen in over 300 studies now. People with, have been, Holter Monitor is a little device you wear 24 hours a day and it constantly records your heartbeat. And statistically significant numbers of patients have worn this and been given, caught COVID-19 and been given hydroxychloroquine. And there's no change in their ECG if they're given it in the first five days after symptom onset. There's no change in the baseline before and after five days of uh, treatment. It's not a factor. Dr. Malone, when you were, could, could you repeat what you said a couple minutes ago about they claimed early on that these were temporary side effects? Because I'm just thinking, how, how, could you, how could you know that? It's 78 years ago yesterday, we dropped a plutonium bomb on Nagasaki. 62 years ago today, we started dropping Agent Orange in Vietnam. Uh, maybe my favorite uh, nuclear bomb test ever, because like a normal 33-year-old, I do have favorites, is Buster Jangle. And it's, it was a psychological test to see if U.S. soldiers would walk towards a tactical nuke, but it was also to see what radiation would do. And when you go back and you look at these things of, of guys spraying Agent Orange or walking towards a radioactive cloud, you kind of get this this cringy feeling like you're 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 administering death to yourself. Some people knew that, but most people didn't. They were guinea pigs. How can they know that that this myocarditis or pericarditis is temporary or not severe? I mean, is the answer obvious that they don't? Yeah. Well, the answer right. is obvious. It's intrinsic in the question because there hadn't been enough elapsed time. Yeah. So this this we've seen this play out all through the COVID crisis, where uh, various federal figures, often Mr. Fauci, because of his willingness to uh, speak his uh, bias and opinions um, in you know on on national broadcasts, uh, would come out with statements that were clearly false, um, and uh, were not were you know often he would make statements about things that were not knowable, and the statements about uh, the myocarditis resolving rapidly in an atypical way compared to viral myocarditis, traditional viral, viral myocarditis, whether the myocarditis associated with the uh, virus itself, which is what Stephen was mostly focused on a moment ago, or the myocarditis and pericarditis that Paul Offit was referring to, which is relating to the vaccine, um, there would be no way to know what the long-term consequences of those were at the time when those announcements were made because there had been no time. Uh, the time had not elapsed. So the, you know, the easy responsible thing to have said would have been, um, yes, we are observing myocarditis and pericarditis. There are signs that it is causally linked to the administration of the vaccine and in some cases also to the uptake of, you know, the infection by the virus. Now, as soon as anybody would say that, that would trigger the, um, uh, obvious hypothesis that what do those two things have in common and the things they have in common is the engineered spike protein. But putting that aside, there's just no way that they would have known that or could have known that these cases would take a different clinical course than that which is typically associated with viral myocarditis. And, and the logical conclusion would be that they would have the same course and the only 
you know, trying to be as kind and generous to the government as possible, which of course I get criticized for, uh, because that proves that I'm actually an agent of the government. Um, but trying to give the benefit of the doubt, uh, what we've heard again and again was a lot of these falsehoods were justified on the basis of seeking to avoid unnecessary or dysfunctional or counterproductive public concern. They're all, they're all built on the predicate thesis that the vaccines were safe and effective. This was the mantra. They are intrinsically safe and effective, and if administered to a sufficiently large fraction of the population, would achieve herd immunity and therefore would end the risk of this, uh, what was pitched to us and pitched to the government, uh, unfortunately, this uh, highly lethal pathogen that now in retrospect, we can see the data and it's not really a highly lethal pathogen um, in the way that was uh, asserted to be. And so, so you had this house of cards built, highly lethal pathogen, safe and effective, if enough people took the virus, remember, or the vaccine, remember Tony saying 60% of population would get us to herd immunity, then it was 70, then it was 80. And then he acknowledged that, well, he didn't really know. He was just saying these things because the government wouldn't accept the truth. I mean, the people wouldn't accept the truth. Um, in other words, there's a whole series of him, uh, you know, substituting his wishes and desires for facts and reporting them to us as if they were facts. So. We've, we had all the way through this, uh, you know, you could call it um, misleading information uh, presented to us uh, to avoid uh, uh, unnecessary or dysfunctional public concern. Or you could say we were lied to repeatedly. Uh, but but this is another great example of that. There's... Um some dishonesty here also in the clinical trials um, several months ago. Some very good clinical scientists, one of them from the BMJ, got a hold of the Pfizer clinical trials. This data had been made available through Judicial Watch, through a FOIA request, and they managed to get enough data that these guys could make their assessment. And their end assessment was, it was 300, I think, and 33% more dangerous to take the vaccine as a young adult uh, than it was to catch COVID-19 and be admitted to hospital. There was no, in the clinical trials, there was no, there was negative benefit to risk ratio. Young people, and we've known this since March of 2020, generally COVID-19 is a self-limiting illness. Um, and then as you go down in age, into the youngsters and then the toddlers and the babies, they don't have the same expression of the bioreceptors, the ACE2 receptor in their upper airways that adults do. And the risk to children uh, is, it's not zero, but it's almost zero. It's infinitesimal. 
there was no reason to extend these um, injections, these immunizations, if you want to call them that, into these lower age groups. There was no justification whatsoever, and it was done anyway. No this justification. Is not, this is not medicine. Public health. Yeah, on the basis of this public is not public health. This is not medicine. The children don't give it to each other. There's some very good studies on this. In fact, I just finished a, um, a chapter on a book about this and reviewed this. Children don't readily transmit it to other children, and they don't readily transmit it to adults. They're not manufacturing large quantities of virus um, to put enough out there in an aerosol form I mean, even among family members, they're not transmitting it that much. And if it is, it's very low dose and it's self-limiting. So uh, there really was, there was no reason for this. None at all. Uh, the same for pregnant women. We could see in the animal data that the nanoparticles, the lipid nanoparticles, didn't remain at the injection site. It spread throughout the body, both in the Pfizer and, uh, and Moderna. The question would be, could this cross the placenta and enter the fetus? And uh, I think it's Dr. Thorpe has just finished some very good studies with ultrasound indicating that, yes, the particles do cross the placenta. Um, there was a complete lack of adequate monitoring. The V-safe system could have been expanded early to include pregnant women with uh, very specific questions concerning their pregnancy, but the CDC didn't bother to do that. And then in addition, a lot of this stuff starts about a week, seven days away from vaccination. A lot of these serious adverse events. And the CDC was only reporting the first seven days, which generally are like with any sort of immunization. It's your immune system being activated and you feel a lousy, your arm is sore, um, this type of general malaise type of thing. And they were using this data to indicate that, oh, see, these vaccines are safe. Uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks uh, didn't, I'm sorry, but they didn't have a clue what they were doing. Absolutely not a clue. Dr. Burks now says, well, she never thought the, the, the mRNA vaccines would work. Well, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Uh, they were promoting these things like crazy. Um, Dr. Walensky, I mean, it's been an unfortunate thing. It's been a tragic thing. And we need to take steps so that this can never happen again. Uh, and this will involve outside 
monitoring bodies that are outside of the federal health pharmaceutical complex. Uh, what's happened is, I mean, there really needs to be some legal accountability here. Those vaccines and the clinical trials never prevented infection. They certainly, there was no data. The trials weren't large enough and the hospitalizations were so rare in the population that they were examining. They didn't look at the old people and the people with comorbidities and the, the places where you, you would see if the symptoms were uh, alleviated somewhat with reduced admission to hospital and reduced severity of disease. They never had the, uh, the numbers to even do this. They just made it up. And for such a highly experimental biological product, I mean, it's an outrage. It's an outrage against science and it's an outrage against, I believe that not one person should have ever been given these vaccines. And there were definite signs around February of 2021 that the break should have been put on. Should we have tried the messenger RNA vaccines? Yes. We were in a national crisis, engineered or not, and we needed to explore all opportunities. In World War II, we tried three different ways to enrich uranium at the cost of millions and millions of dollars because we didn't know which one would work the best. Should a vaccine have been tried? Yes. But it, it needed to be well understood the highly experimental nature of these vaccines and the utmost care taken. And when the V-SAFE program was outlined, it was, uh, it, it was very carefully designed to be monitored. And then the CDC failed to report the data that was there past seven days after uh, uh, receiving an immunization or a booster. The data was there. So the federal health agencies have failed. And it's time for a massive reorganization. Um, We've ignored infectious disease now for way too long, for, for 40 years now. It's all been social sort of medicine. Uh, how many housewives burn themselves in the kitchen each year? How many homicides uh, in this age group? Infectious diseases never went away, but uh, they're certainly back with a furor now. We're getting at least one new infectious disease every year that uh, was unknown to science. Uh, there's worse things out there in the dark forests that we're cutting down, in the jungles that we're clearing. Uh, there's a lot worse things than COVID-19 lurking there. And we really, this is probably our last warning until uh, a major event happens with 
Uh, well, this had about a 1% mortality rate. Um, there's things out there with a 40% mortality rate. And if one of those gets loose, you start losing your large city infrastructures uh, due to illness and deaths. And all of these, we have 120 of our largest cities and their support systems with fuel and electricity and sanitation and all these things are so interlinked. If you lose any one of those arms, the whole thing collapses like dominoes. You lose 20% of your workforce over a period of a few months and you're gonna lose everything that supports that city. We don't know how bread gets to the supermarket. You can't model it. Or how gasoline gets out of the ground as oil and to the refinery. These are complex chaos mechanisms. Um, it doesn't just magically appear there, but these distribution pipelines have evolved on their own. When you try to interfere with these, you end up like the old Soviet Union and your shelves are all bare. But they're all interlinked. No gas, no delivery trucks. No delivery trucks, no food on the shelves. So, I mean, we're, we're reaching a critical thing here, I believe, which seems to have begun in 1995 when we started seeing all these unusual flu strains that we'd never seen before. And it's not abating. Yeah, we really must start getting our act together now. Devil's advocate, could you argue that these chaos systems would adapt in a way that we can't model? If we can't model, just going on that line, if we can't model how they work now, could you theoretically argue that we can't model how they'd adapt? When you have so many systems so intertwined, they may adapt, but they're all going to go down at once or very close to each other. A um, number of things could cause this. A large solar flare and these high voltage transformers. Mm -hmm. There's a number of threats to our largest cities. Uh, but it doesn't take much for it to go chaotic. Disease, and if it's a pandemic, are other countries going to come in and help you? No, they're probably having their own difficulties. The, the speed that this went around the world, the different variants, was, uh, was to me personally frightening. Uh, sort of a recombinant thing coming out of India and within a few months, it was over here. So these are things. Globalism has some bad things to it. Because when somebody has trouble, everybody has trouble. And especially with pandemics. Um, 
air travel 24 hours. You can be on the other side of the world and at, in John F. Kennedy International Airport 24 hours later. These are all factors that weren't that much of a problem 100 years ago when things were all steamship. And the 1918 influenza still managed to spread around the world within a year and become, uh, uh, I think it's number four in the greatest plagues we've ever had. So these are threats that need to be addressed. And you can only do this with a rational thing. Uh, and pre-planning. So, there we're back. We don't have a pandemic defense now. Uh, it's like, there's a lot of talk and this and that, but the, the actual things aren't being addressed at the local level. Um, we're running out of time. Mother Nature isn't very happy with us. And uh, I don't blame her. We've not looked after things very well. And uh, I think I think we're going to see this in our lifetimes. Dr. Malone, I'm is there any way you can put a positive spin on this? Or should I jump out of my fifth floor apartment right now? <laughs> I don't know. What to, I don't really know how to. Had to come back to that. I was going to make a joke well, about well, <clears throat> So here's a positive spin. All right. One of the things we've learned is the power of the human immune system. Um, even in this case, to the extent that this is a pathogen uh, of, of uh, significance, what we've seen is, number one, how rapidly it's evolved to, you know, towards the usual trajectory of uh, more highly infectious and less pathogenic as it's moved into this new species, the human being, and uh, also at how powerful and resilient our own bodies are in responding to this. And we've also learned the importance of this neglected factor that that has many people have focused on, but the government neglected to, which was uh, good health, um, things like vitamin D, uh, the things that uh, enable us to be healthy and resilient, remembering that the threat of infectious disease has coexisted with the threat of human beings uh, uh, for the entire uh, lifespan of the species. Infectious disease is not a new phenomena uh, for the human species. It's not like we just arrived on this earth uh, from, uh, you know, via UFOs or UAPs. Um, in in the last uh three years uh we've we've co-evolved with most of these pathogens and what has occurred over time is uh this elaborate evolutionary dance or maybe if you wish to go there there's a creation component to it but uh their 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 biology creates constraints it's it's not completely an open field and uh, there are just a limited number of ways that pathogens can sneak by the defenses that have evolved in the modern human, uh, you know, homo sapiens, where, where we have these layers of adaptive and innate immune response 
which we're still learning about. It's it's fascinating how deep and, and complex this is. Uh, we're learning now that a lot of what we thought was innate immune response even has an adaptive component. So there are these layers of protection. There's only certain uh, pathways that pathogens seem to be able to exploit. Um, we are learning about ways to bolster those, uh, let's say, weak links in the armor uh, through a variety of biologics and drugs. And uh, I, I'm of the camp, the non-Malthusian camp. You know, there's the, the Malthusian logic that we live in a world of, of limited resources and uh, gradually human beings are at risk for outstripping those resources. And uh, we have this inevitable endpoint that is quite uh, nihilistic uh, that we will, we will all return to the dust. And uh, the counterpoint to that is uh, humans, both biologically and, and cognitively, are amazingly innovative. Yeah, and uh, so if you could, you could take uh, Dr. Hatfield's uh, warnings as, uh, oh my God, there's an inevitable dark future, uh, or you could say um, he is alerting us to the need to innovate a plan, prepare. And that if we do that and we create structures that will allow the development and application of uh, human innovation to address this issue in various forms, then there's a very good likelihood that that together with our own innate biology is going to allow us to avoid this uh, dark future that uh, could occur. Uh, it's, it's in the probability spectrum. And I think even Stephen will tell you that a lot of these things that he's speaking of have uh, kind of probability clouds around them. Uh, so they're not necessarily inevitable. Uh, and, and what I'm hearing in his comments is the uh, frustration of a gentleman who has spent his entire life uh, basically saying um, uh, in, in his own actions, not, not only warning, but, but acting to do something about it and uh, encountering bureaucratic incompetence and mismanagement and all the things that go along, uh, the blowback, et cetera, that go along often with very large bureaucratic organizations uh, in their attempts to address or lack of attempts to address threats. Uh, and um, and I, 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 I don't see the glasses quite so half empty. Uh, I think that uh, we uh, do have uh, enormous capabilities. Obviously, I believed that even more at one point in my life because I contributed to the innovations uh, for the baseline technology here, uh, but also abandoned that technology in favor of other technologies as I learned that I could not overcome the inflammatory problems associated with it in my own laboratory research. So, you know, uh, here, here, give me an example. And of course, I'm going to be criticized for this. I haven't spoken about it before. Uh, the other day, I got a uh, email from my first postdoc. His name is Peter Berglund. Very proud of him. He came to me from the laboratory of Peter Lillystrom of the Karolinska, who happens to sit on the selection committee, but that's another tangent. Uh, and Peter 
wrote to me. He said, "Hey, I've just published in uh, one of the cell paper, one of the cell uh, journals, my work uh, demonstrating that these formulations are highly inflammatory and they're distributed all over the body." Um, uh, and uh, we did extensive research now, additional research beyond what was done for the Pfizer dossier, etc. Prove that this is the case. And I think we've come up with, at least the data show, that we've come up with new formulations that don't have these problems and do stay put where they're injected. Now, we'll see about the test of time, uh, and, and anybody who does this kind of stuff always hopes for the best. It's like birthing a child. But uh, Peter, Peter's an example of a, he's now a middle-aged scientist, uh, functioning at the peak of his capability. Um, addressing head-on the problems that were identified with this tech that were identifiable before it was ever deployed in humans. Uh, and uh, here we are three years later, he thinks he has a major advance in addressing those problems. And if we had been more responsible in deploying the tech, uh, in, a, in characterizing it well in, uh, prior to this global campaign that is I think destroyed its potential. I mean, who, who, that right now, all the farmers are up in arms because they're worried that they're going to force this tech into their uh, livestock, uh, which is, you know, to some extent uh, an irrational fear, but it's, it's, uh, it's an example of, of what happens when you jam this down people's throats. And uh, so my opinion is that uh, we, if, if uh, we pay attention, act responsibly, act maturely, uh, and and have a bureaucracy that uh, somehow we create boundaries so that it doesn't get corrupted by these public-private partnership relationships, then uh, we can avoid the dark uh, future that uh, Dr. Hatfield is appropriately warning us of. The threat is there. Um, there's no denying the threat. Uh, and I've spoken about it as the underlying justification for nucleic acid vaccination and going gene <clears throat> vaccine. You know, this is why the government wants this tech. This is why the intelligence community wants this tech. Um, and unfortunately, it was just handled irresponsibly. And uh, we've all had to deal with the consequences, including myself personally damaged by uh, the second of the doses that I received that was one of the known bad batches. Over. To... <clears throat> To, t to tie in what you're you're both saying is is you know talking about these chaos systems and that we can over I mean think of something like Moore's law as we get closer and closer to the number of transistors we can do on a whatever no one backs down they just they just like triple investment or you think about I always think it's kind of funny that like a week after the U2 was shot down you know publicly Eisenhower was like this is bad we're not going to do this again but privately, like, went to Skunk Works and was like, can you go higher and faster? And they're like, fuck yeah, we can. Like, so, like, we will, you know, the A-bomb is like, that was crazy. Do you think you can make it, like, like a thousand times bigger? And I was like, yeah, I think we could. Like, so when it comes to just, like, killing each other, we have no problem doing it. But when it comes to overcoming these problems, we all have this sort of head hanging, like, well, I guess we can't do it anymore. But... I think to what Dr. Hatfield is saying about these chaos systems, and then when the Soviets tampered with it, the shelves get empty. I think you could almost say it's it's prominent now because today is, I believe, uh, Missouri v. Biden, and it's 
kind of wrapping up all the censorship, the trusted news initiative, 2020 election fortification, vaccine damages. It might be that this system could have reacted to all this, but like the Soviets tampering with it, we've tampered with the free flow of information. Can I, can I jump in on that? Yeah. So, uh, and I've been, I, I, my critics, uh, share all kinds of things with me. And one of them is that I dominate conversations and I interrupt too much. So I apologize. It's my show. It's a dictatorship. Um, You can do whatever you want. So this has been my objection about the whole underlying logic of globalism, which is the thesis that a globalized command economy will be more efficient. And the thesis that the reason why centralized planning and command economies and the uh, underpinning structure that's usually called socialism has not worked in the past is because we just didn't have enough data. We didn't have enough resources. We didn't have enough fill in the blank, you know, and uh, we can get to the worker's paradise if we only have whatever this other thing is that we haven't had in the past. And so now we need to go all off and do that. But there, there, if, if you look at the course of, of history and these deployments, um, there's intrinsic fundamental structural problems with the idea of centralized planning, as opposed to enabling and allowing these kinds of evolved uh, um, chaos-driven systems uh, to self-assemble and, and uh, operate autonomously or semi-autonomously within you know, you need to put boundaries to avoid uh, um, rapacious behavior. But, uh, you know, every time this is tried, we find that a single global solution is will not work. It's incredibly inefficient as opposed to decentralized uh, semi-autonomous solutions. Admitted, I, I don't recall, were we talking about fifth generation warfare at one point? One of the key lessons in warfare as we move from first to third generation was which you know pioneered and and largely uh perfected by the germans in world war ii is the decentralization of authority the pushing of authority down to local commander enables much much more efficient battle responses because Mm -hmm. you can be flexible to local conditions and this is the same logical problem that uh the belief system that for instance, my wife and I were talking this morning, I'm going to introduce another thread, global warming or climate climate crisis, or now it's global burning. I don't know what they call it lately. Boiling. Um, it used to be go- boiling and it used to be global freezing. Um, uh, so in the, the logic of global warming, it's now advocated with Agenda 2030 that we need to take 20 some percent of the farmland out of commission um, and allow it to recover. And so that's what leads to the logic of the Dutch farmers being kicked off their land is, well, we need to, everybody needs to uh, uh, reduce farming and uh, return 20% of the land. Um, no, no, that is, that's so absurd. The, the, you know, the underlying thesis, which by the way, can be readily challenged that we're having global desertification, that the data show otherwise, we're actually getting global greening particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's turning out to be yet another lie. But even if, let's assume that it was true, 
and we needed to return more land to its natural green state, its forested state. Well, where is it that we really have the, quote, lungs of the planet where we would need to do that? Is it in uh, Dutch recovered farmland because of dikes in the floodplains from Europe with all that rich alluvium? Or is it in the bloody rainforest? Okay, why are we kicking off Dutch farmers from productive farmland uh, when the real, if there is an issue to the extent that it exists, it's occurring in the rainforest? Um, it, it's, it's the thesis that all things are alike. And that is the, the, the logic that underpins central planning. That is the logic of the uh, Russian, the USSR command economy is, you know, I love the story of uh, plumbers. The plumbing industry in the former Soviet Union uh, was, its, its output was measured by tonnage of pipe. And there was a revolution in the rest of the world when they went from iron pipe to PVC and plastic pipe which is way, way lighter. But if you're a Russian pipe maker, okay, you you don't want to go there because your output is measured by tonnage of pipe, okay? You'd be shooting yourself. Yeah. Um, you would be guaranteed to fail. And so therefore the Russian industry, the Russian economy totally missed out on the uh, plumbing revolution because the central planners were sitting there, you know, with their little checkbooks saying, well, how many tons of pipe have you shipped this year? Uh, and you'll get your, you know, your gold, your, your red star, or you won't, uh, you'll get a pay cut um, because you have or have not met your uh, requirements in tonnage. That this, this is how this kind of bureaucratic, centrally planned logic goes. And uh, not, I'm going to throw in another thread now since I'm on a rant. Uh, a lot of us are becoming more and more not libertarians, let alone, say, Republicans uh, or conservatives, we're becoming constitutionalists. The idea that the, the right balance was struck so many years ago in the framing of these documents uh, to guide a free uh, people governing themselves where you had to have a balance between some degree of centralization for things like enabling commerce and defense and a large large degree of decentralization. And how far out do you push that? Is it all the way out to a libertarian end of one? Or is it down to the level of states? Uh, and they struck a balance and maybe it was the right balance or the wrong balance, but it's better than the idea of having the WEF telling us all um, how much farmland we should uh, re recirculate and uh, when we should have climate lockdowns and when we should live in 15-minute cities. There, end of rant. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. my, uh, you know, we're, you're pointing out things as a rational human being. Like, this isn't efficient. And the rainforests are more important than Dutch farmland. And if we really cared about energy, we'd be going nuclear. Well, then so, you, you got to start shifting your mind and going, Oh, I don't think they actually care about solving the equation. I think that I think they want to sit on top of the garbage heap. Hence, hence, hence my the recent essays that we put out regarding the Kissinger report and the subsequent national um, policy statements out of the Ford administration that are still in place that have to do with uh, um, 
capping global population at no more than 8 billion and reducing it as rapidly as possible down after that through a number of different means, which is apparently the State Department has put up, by the way, since then a specific denial that depopulation is not the uh, policy of the United States. But uh, when you look at those declassified documents, uh, it's I don't know how else to interpret those. I think most people don't like Henry Kissinger because of his words and actions. I don't like him because he has never responded to my emails, and I've been trying to get him on here for three straight years. And he is—I've even wished him happy birthday. He's—he's he's absolutely controlled opposition. You know. Yeah. Now he will not come on my show, which is very disappointing. I think it'd be great, Doctor Hatfield. We've—we've uh, we've kind of boxed you out, and because I have another show at at, at three p.m., we got to wrap this up in a couple minutes. Do you have any closing thoughts? Because you. You are wearing yeah. a tie, which is the which is the senior the senior uh, apparatus. We uh, Robert and I went over this the last time we met with you on the fact that <clears throat> he's correct. The answer lies with the local authorities, not the central uh, government. But just a last little warning here: no other species of large mammal on this planet has ever achieved our population, global population densities at the moment. We've entered unknown territory. And essentially, we're all living in a very large biological experiment. None of us know what's going to happen yeah. in the future. It's time to quit messing around. And as a species, we need to get our act together. There's things we should have been doing already. And Robert, we talked about this the last time we spoke, training the local authorities on medical surge, this type of thing, going through our 20,000 pharmaceuticals, if not more, looking for off-label antiviral activity, cheap and expensive viral detectors for screening. These are all things that, that actually should be in place right now. And I just see more of the same. The messenger RNA vaccines were a, a great idea. And I think it's gonna show promise for fixing um, inborn errors of metabolism, birth defects. I think there's a huge, huge thing about this. But we've got the people that were developing this not even bothering to look, is the spike protein itself toxic or not? Yeah. Uh, somebody missed like the basics. Is this protein that we're gonna teach the body to make? poisonous or not and hell yes it was poisonous there needs to be like checklists and there needs to be responsible people in our federal health agencies knowledgeable well-trained and whose primary concern is is the welfare of the country well said Well that's, that's well, that's terrifying. Um, 
Guys, uh, for everybody listening, uh, please go into the uh, description. You can grab Dr. Malone's book, Lies My Government Told Me, or uh, Dr. Hatfield's book, Three Seconds Till Midnight. Dr. Hatfield, what's that blanket on that chair? I've been I've been wanting to ask you. Is that is that a blanket or like a throw towel or something? It's like a leopard. Oh, it's a tapestry from Kenya. It's that's, a cheetah. That's so badass. I spent a lot of time in Africa. Sometimes I'm so proud of myself for these interviews. Because you get you two are both badass guests, and then I'll just and then I'll just throw it all out of the window with a complete lack of social awareness. Like, hey, what's the towel you got over the side of your chair? And I bring myself right back down. I don't know if it's self sabotage. Oh, that's, that's you got two honey. Well, there's three honey badgers here. Well, I, I <laughs> you don't let something go easily. I'm just yeah. That shows my level of intellect. Is is um, I'm I'm taken by the lion over Doctor Malone's shoulder and the cheetah over your shoulder. I'm I'm very attentive. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't have one though. So, but yeah, that's my that's my final low IQ comment. Um, guys, please go into the description. Please go follow Doctor Malone. Please go grab the books of Doctor Malone and Doctor Hatfield. And um, yeah, guys, till next time. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, I look forward to the next one. Nice seeing you again, Tommy. Thank you, sir. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you for watching. Stay safe, everybody. Much love. Good to see you. Peace. You too, sir.